Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Peter Kreeft. He is professor of philosophy at Boston College, author of many things, uh, including Wisdom from the Psalms, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing, and How to Be Holy. He was with us a few months back, and he's with us again to discuss his new book, The Greatest Philosopher Who Ever Lived. Welcome, Professor Kreeft. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you start with a confession uh, as you look back on your previous work, uh, works on philosophy and philosophers, that you had something of a misconception about what philosophy really was. What was that misconception? Well, I just finished a few years ago a four-volume history of philosophy for beginners. The subtitle was The 100 Greatest Philosophers. And I remember asking one of my classes, uh, what did all 100 have in common? And someone came up with the answer, well, they were all male rather than female. And that got me thinking, uh, especially since philosophy is supposed to be the love of wisdom rather than the cultivation of cleverness or the sophistication of scholarship. I thought, who is the closest to divine wisdom? And that has to be Our Lady. She is the seat of wisdom. Uh, not only... Uh, spiritually, but physically. Uh, Jesus sat on her lap uh, for his infancy. So um, I said, um, we know very little about Mary, but what we know is, is very precious, and it has great philosophical implications. So I uh, set about seeing whether <clears throat> Mary really implicitly is the greatest uh, uh, philosopher in all the basic areas of philosophy. I got about 12 of them, ranging from epistemology to uh, education. Why do you think philosophers have lost sight of this love aspect? That's a good question. I wish I were a psychologist and could give you a better answer to it. But love is free, and therefore it's always up to us. It's not automatic. It's not a kind of natural causality. So you don't just fall into or out of love. You bring yourself into love or out of it. So it's very easy to, to forget first love, like that uh, church in uh, Laodicea who uh, became lukewarm. Uh, I think philosophy has done that. The passion for truth that characterized someone like Socrates or Plato or Aquinas, uh, I, I rarely see. I see a passion for success and fame and scholarship and cleverness, but what about wisdom? Does nobody in all of Scripture embody wisdom better than Mary? Many are going to come close, but she, she, nobody really fulfills the love aspect better than she does. Is that right? 
Yes, and this is why uh, we have towards her hyperdulia, which is uh, uh, utmost uh, respect. It's not latria, it's not adoration or worship that is reserved for God alone. But among all merely human beings, uh, she is the best uh, and not only the most innocent, but also the most positively wise. Because the essence of love is wisdom. Uh, excuse me, the essence of wisdom is love. And she loved our Lord more than anyone else ever did, which makes her automatically the, uh, uh, the practitioner of supreme wisdom. You speak at the start of the prime difficulty that her supreme expression of love poses to yourself. You, you say, I'm a fallen, shallow, stubborn character uh, trying to describe and understand the wisest being who ever lived. How do you, how do you try to overcome that? You don't. You accept it and you say uh, something like, uh, our Lord, for some strange reason known only to himself, uh, prefers to use jackasses to ride into Jerusalem to do his work. <laughs> there it is. There it is. How do you call her, or, or what, what makes you call her, quote, the perfect matchmaker for the two disciplines, philosophy and theology? Well, maybe matchmaker isn't the, uh, the best word. Uh, she practices the the union of them. The uh, the distinction between natural theology, theology done by natural reason, and <clears throat> revealed theology, the theology that depends upon what only God can know and is revealed to us, uh, is obviously necessary. And yet, uh, as the first Christian philosopher Justin Martyr said. And he's the church's patron saint of all philosophers. All philosophers are seeking God. Uh, all philosophers, at least in almost all of them in ancient Greece, uh, explicitly uh, were seeking God or, or talking about the true God, the true, the, the ultimate truth, the logos. But uh, if, if philosophy is wisdom, and wisdom is the love of truth, and not just any truth, but the highest truth, and if God is the highest truth, then philosophy and God can't be separated. So that uh, whether done by faith or by reason or a combination of, of both, uh, philosophy's aim is the knowledge of God and the mind of God, the logos. No one knows that better than Mary. Of course. Yeah. She had the logos within her. She was uh, one with the logos as no other human being ever was. You note that this is signaled in, in the rosary, when Mary is referred to as, quote, seat of wisdom. Uh, she's many other things, but you really believe we should take that statement perhaps more seriously than is, that it's underappreciated. Is that right? Well, the things the church gives us over the centuries that are unchanging and central uh, are like uh, like like the ocean. Uh, they're large and they're obviously important, but they're also deep and they're mysterious and they reward investigation. They reward deep sea diving. Uh, scripture in general uh, is amazing that way. The, the surface is quite clear. A child can understand the basic points, and yet all the world's theologians have far from exhausted uh, the depths.
And the farther down you go, the more surprised you are. It's a very strange looking fish down there. There's one, uh, one point you make that poses a challenge for casting Mary as, as the greatest philosopher. You note that she actually says very little in the Bible. Uh, I think it's 187 words, uh, at least in the, in the, in the translation that, that you're using. Uh, why, why don't we get more, if, if she's a figure of wisdom, if she is so, so true, close to the Logos, uh, can we can we derive enough from her spare statements? It's precisely because she is so silent that she is so wise. Uh, the wisest philosophers are the ones that say the most in the fewest words. Uh, that's true of the mystics too. Uh, fake mystics, uh, they. They natter on and on and give you all sorts of details, and it makes you naturally suspicious. Uh, look at the greatest philosophers. Look at Thomas Aquinas. Look at Pascal. Uh, they say things like, uh, my, my work is nothing but straw. That's Aquinas' uh, version. Uh, Pascal says, uh, philosophy is worth about a half hour's trouble. And this, this is said by one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. Uh, lovers know that. Uh, the profoundest language that lovers have is simply silence, presence. And that's what Christ gives us in the Eucharist. He doesn't give us spectacular miracles most of the time. He doesn't give us mystical experiences most of the time. He gives us silence. He hides. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you said that, it made me think of one of the great influential philosophers of the 20th century who actually wrote not very much when you add up all the pages. I mean Wittgenstein, uh, of course, and those last lines mm -hmm. in, in the Tractatus, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Same point? And Wittgenstein explicitly said that that's the point of the whole book. The Tractatus, which is so admired by uh, logical positivists and analytic philosophers, is, is a book that uh, uh, sets you on the quest for something beyond the Tractatus, uh, what he called the mystical. Uh, he said that uh, the fundamental point of the Tractatus is about ethics, which is a surprise because there's no ethics at all in the Tractatus. But it's, it's a silhouette. It shows you what ethics transcends, namely merely factual propositions. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have to say that one of the longest statements by Mary is, is that uh, the, the, the Magnificat, which I think is a magnificent prayer. Uh, we actually recite the Magnificat to a melody uh, when we do prayers at the First Things Townhouse, where a few of the people who, who work here uh, live. Do you love that prayer as much as I do? I mean, do you, do, you, do you really love saying it and singing it as much as I do? Well, yes, music is the language of love. Uh, I think music is the original language that was spoken in the Garden of Eden, and it'll probably be the universal language in heaven that will enable us to transcend all our national dialects and understand each other. Uh, Heidegger says somewhere that uh, uh, music is the original language, and uh, uh, poetry is fallen music, and prose is fallen poetry. 
rather than vice versa. I think that's quite profound. And there is a a, a long tradition in both Judaism and Christianity that uh, God created the world in music. We find that in uh, uh, Tolkien's Silmarillion at the beginning in his creation epic, the Ainu Lindala. And we also find it in one of the of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, uh, where Aslan sings the world into existence. We, we all feel somehow that music is so profound that it cannot be put into words. It's the art that comes from the deepest heart and touches us the deepest heart. So the Magnificat is music. So Mary's primary language is music. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I hadn't prepared a question about Heidegger uh, for our interview, but you, you bring Wittgenstein and then Heidegger. These are the, the perhaps the, the two most influential 20th century philosophers for the analytic tradition and then for the, the continental, the speculative tradition. Both of them had this mystical streak. Uh, you know, Heidegger has it as well. But their followers, they don't... Uh, few of them picked up on that. The same is true of Husserl. I think Husserl, Heidegger, and Wittgenstein, the three most important 20th century philosophers, all have two things in common. One, they were humble enough to confess that their original intention was a failure. Uh, Husserl tried to map the essential essences of ordinary experience in a, uh, a thing that he called a Cartesian meditation, it's clear and distinct ideas. Couldn't be done, had to transcend reason. Uh, and he turned to much more practical and ethical issues in his later life. Uh, Heidegger, in Being in Time, his masterpiece, he's, it's only uh, half finished. He said the, the road was closed. I had to go another route. Heidegger, too, is much more poetic, much more direct, much more suggestive, much more mystical. Uh, and, of course, Wittgenstein. The philosophical investigations are basically a repudiation of his earlier, uh, more analytic work. So humility triumphs and silence triumphs. Hmm. What is the reference to Mary in the book of Revelation? And, and how does it figure in your argument? Well, she is obviously the woman clothed with the sun. Uh, and you know the passage. Uh, it's told poetically. Uh, there's a juxtaposition of uh, uh, the flight into Egypt and uh, Christ's ascension into heaven. And Mary, as far as we know from Scripture, doesn't have anything directly to do with the ascension. But uh, she takes him with Joseph into Egypt and, and saves him from Herod. Uh, and that's not just a piece of historical past uh, fact that has profound symbolic implications. Uh, Mary, when Christ was in her womb, was her protector, his protector. She, she was the, the frame around the picture. Without her, we don't have him. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You mentioned the Protestant hesitation about 
Mary. What is that hesitation, and how do you how do you address that stance in the book? I don't know how to address it. It remains a puzzle to me. Almost every Protestant, at least every evangelical Protestant that I know who has become a Catholic, uh, has seen Mary as, if not the primary obstacle, a primary obstacle, as long as they were Protestant. It was usually the last Catholic dogma that they could understand and accept. And after being a Catholic for a number of years, they look back on that and they don't understand why they had such a prejudice against one of the most beautiful of all Catholic dogmas. It's like having a prejudice against uh, uh, diamonds or Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or some other masterpiece. And I, I just don't, don't understand that. Uh, so I must confess, I'm glad you asked the question, but I, I don't have an answer to it. Yeah, yeah. As we move further into the book, you discuss Mary as having actually a methodology. I mean, all philosophers have some kind of methodology, right? And mm -hmm. you, you say that her methodology actually begins with tradition, and it actually then includes fear, correct? Yes, tradition and fear and pondering. These are three mental attitudes that are, let me say, non-technological. They're not uh, uh, mechanical. They're not push this button and you'll get that result. They're not utilitarian. This is the end we want, and this is the means that's going to attain the end, so let's do that means so that we attain that end. Uh, it transcends that kind of thinking. Both, both tradition, which is, is accepted by, by trust, by, by respect rather than by proof, uh, and, and pondering, which is a kind of intuitive rather than calculative thinking, uh, and fear, the fear of the Lord, the awe, the, uh, uh, the natural attitude you have in the presence of, uh, of a transcendent mystery, which is unfortunately disappearing from the modern consciousness. <laughs> Indeed. P pondering also goes with the silence, right? When you ponder, you're, you're, you're mm -hmm. sort of, you're, you're, you're quiet, you're not, you're not pushing hard. You're thinking, but it's, it's a kind of openness. You're, 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 you're receiving. Yeah. Uh, something. It's a posture of, of mind that I think does open you to something beyond you, right? And I'm afraid that most modern people don't like that. Uh, they see silence as threatening. They have to have background music for everything that they do. Uh, in fact, this, this is uh, almost terrifying. The thing that any of the great saints and sages would love, uh, namely silence and solitude, is the thing that we invent as our most horrible torture to our worst prisoner, solitary confinement. I, I, I once noted to students in, in, a, in a class when I was telling them, read more books and, uh, you know, turn off that TV. I mean, college students spend still three hours a day watching, some three hours a day watching TV. And a student said, if, if I turn off the TV, the silence would drive me crazy. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Just, That's a terrifying no. thing to say. It is. It's, <laughs> and I, I felt, I actually felt, felt bad for her, you know, the, the, the science. Let, let, me, let me turn to another issue. You bring up Mary's virginity uh, and her, 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 you know, complimentary innocence. How does that come into play here? Well, here, too, is a traditional mystery that is usually misunderstood by the modern mind. Virginity to the modern mind is a negative thing. 
uh, lack of sexual acts. Uh, but it's a positive thing in Mary. It's a, a, a beauty, a, a glory, a blessing. Uh, it's, it's the concentration of her whole being into a single point, which is aimed at the Lord. Hmm. And that, and that's the kind of innocence that, I mean, it, it goes along with, uh, the silence, the pondering, the, if you are focused so, so fully upon the Lord, then the things that can corrupt your innocence, well, they're, they're blocked out. I mean, that, this is the way to try to maintain our innocence. Even other good things, and sex is invented by God and a good thing, and it was the first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Even other good things, insofar as they're the many, have to take second place to the one, and he's the one. You talk about Mary's logic, uh, that she, she has a particular, she's a kind of logician as well. And the thing that most characterizes her logic is uh, more of a both and rather than an either or. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that may, may find people difficult who want to divide things up, but this both, it is X and Y, not either X or Y. How does that work with Mary? Well, as we get deeper into our faith, we get closer to the summit of, of the mountain where the north side and the south side become one. And we see that uh, uh, what we had classified as an either or are just two aspects of the same thing. Uh, one very obvious example is uh, divine sovereignty and human free will, uh, or as John Paul II loved to emphasize, freedom and truth, the subjective and the objective. Uh, obviously, the two greatest mysteries of our faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation, uh, are both both and mysteries rather than either or mysteries. Is God one or many? Both. Is he a person or nature? Both. Is Christ divine or human? Both. Is God imminent or transcendent? Both. He's so transcendent that he, he creates the entire universe out of nothing. And he's so imminent that he, as being itself, is at the heart of everything that, that doth be. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, uh, yeah, another, another paradox is that the most creative, powerful, influential figure in human history was also the most obedient, conforming most fully to the Father. Mm -hmm. Mary, Mary expresses that as well. Yeah, um, almost everyone, even non-Christians, regard Jesus as, as a very creative person, uh, a very original person. Uh, you can't make fiction about him. Jesus' novels are always spectacular failures and embarrassing. Uh, and even Jesus' movies, except for Mel Gibson's, uh, are, are, I think, largely failures. Uh, and yet this most creative person, this most active person, is the most obedient. He says he comes into the world not to do his own will, but the Father's will, and not to teach his own doctrine, but the Father's doctrine. And I think we see echoes of that in our own experience. When you affirm yourself and assert yourself and uh, believe our, our 
pop psychologists who say you should think more about yourself. Uh, you're the most important person in the whole wide world, which was the uh, slogan for an obscene children's show called The Electric Company. Uh, you should be more of an egotist. Well, you fail. Uh, you come back from uh, uh, a party and you say, what an idiot I was. I, I tried to make myself big and I, I popped my balloon. On the other hand, when you just forget about yourself, uh, that's when you have not only the highest joy, but the most true, authentic creativity and freedom. You say that Mary speaks the most metaphysical of all words. Fiat. What do you mean there? That's almost the word that God spoke to create the world. Uh, let it be. Uh, the, the command that didn't merely describe something that was already there, but made something to be. Uh, logically, uh, language has a number of different uses uh, and different sentences in English have different purposes. Uh, a declarative sentence simply declares that something is true. Uh, an imperative sentence uh, is, is a, an order, a command. Uh, an interrogative sentence is a, is a question. Uh, an exclamatory sentence is just an expression of emotion. But there are performative sentences, like I baptize you, or I dub you knight, or I, I hereby make you my deputy. And that's the kind of language God used to create the world. And Mary brought about the incarnation uh, by her saying, yes, let it be done to me according to your word. She had to actively surrender. Uh, we, we, we tend to be male chauvinists and think that um, uh, in life as in sexual activity, uh, the male part is active and the female part is passive. Not true. It's, to be receptive is not to be passive. Uh, the son is eternally receptive to the father, and that's not passivity, that's activity. That's like being the catcher in baseball. That's just as active as the pitcher. When you discuss Mary's theology, uh, one issue you raise is uh, the question of the old problem of evil, the theodicy question. What is her answer to that question of evil in the world? In a sense, to ignore it, to turn her eyes to the good God in total trust, uh, to simply ride the wave, even though it looks it's like it's going to wipe her out. In other words, the practical answer rather than the theoretical answer. Instead of going back and trying to read the mind of God and figure out why he allows such an evil, uh, she just rides along with the wave of his grace. He, it's abandonment to divine providence, to quote a wonderful title of a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. And that's the answer? Yeah, abandonment, the lived answer. Abandonment to divine providence. And it would seem that that's, a, I actually find that a very satisfying answer. To, and to and it's it's very logical because if there's any being that deserves the name God, he has to have at least the attributes of omnipotence and omniscience and omnibenevolence. He has to have no limit on his, his wisdom or his love or his power. And if that's true, then what follows logically and necessarily from that is one of the most wonderful verses in scripture, Romans eight twenty eight: all things work together for good, even evil. 
God deliberately allows evil. Of course, he doesn't do it, but he allows it only because he sees that he can bring a greater good out of it. And the obvious example of that was the crucifixion, which we we have the chutzpah to call Good Friday. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? I well, and and you 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 don't you don't push this very hard, but the implication is that suffering is is actually good for us, and which is a very hard modern truth, right? To accept. I, I tell my son that you know, my boy, the most. The most insufferable people uh, to be around are those who've never suffered. They're they're difficult. And that, that, uh, but that's very hard for for people in the 21st century to to accept, isn't it? Yes, and that's because we've lost that pagan wisdom. This is not just a Christian wisdom. Uh, pagan Greeks and Romans and, and, and Buddhists and Confucians uh, realized that uh, uh, without training, without suffering, without sacrifice, you're not human. You're not uh, uh, fully developed. You're, you're, you're a spoiled little brat. Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Heschel says, I love this line, the man who has never suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? <laughs> that, you know, I'm, I'm going to steal that quote and, and, uh, uh, the man who's never suffered, what can he know anyway? That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, you say that there are the three most important words in ethics. What are those three words? Well, all three of them are, are fundamental. And you can look at all of ethics from the point of view of any one of these three. They're like doors into a house. The most fundamental one of all, I think, is good which assumes something real, something objective, something metaphysical. Uh, And the second one is right as opposed to wrong. And that's much more human, much more legal, much more relational. Uh, And then there's uh, ought uh, or duty or obligation. That's the the absoluteness of conscience pressing upon us. Uh, A a moral but not physical necessity, a necessity that appeals to free choice. All, all three of those are central to, to ethics. Uh, and they're, in, in some languages, I think they're not as clearly distinguished as they are in English. Uh, so you have uh, some ethical thinkers like Aquinas who ask uh, the question, what is the good? What is the, uh, the greatest good? What is the end? What is the means? Uh, then you have more modern thinkers who talk about right versus wrong uh, and, and moral law. Uh, and then you have more psychological thinkers who uh, uh, explore conscience, like Newman, uh, as uh, uh, the absoluteness of, of a moral obligation. And isn't it interesting that even modern people who are skeptical of the first two approaches, uh, who knows what's good and bad? Uh, and uh, right and wrong, maybe that's just a human invented law. But then that experience of the absoluteness of conscience that uh, tells them that it's always wrong to disobey your conscience, no matter what you believe the conscience says. Uh, that's uh, our last connection with God as, as the moral absolute. Even, even a moral relativist has one absolute left, unless he's totally lost his conscience. And that's impossible. He can only suppress it. It's, it's, it's there to bother him. Dostoevsky shows that with people like Raskolnikov in uh, Crime and Punishment or Ivan Karamazov in The Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. You, you can't rip up your moral motherboard. You also go into Mary's political philosophy, I should say, her aesthetics, uh, her philosophy of 
education, but we will let that for readers to discover. Uh, the book is The Greatest Philosopher Who Ever Lived. Professor Kreeft, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. God bless you and your work. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.